When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, Season 2, a podcast about the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. In the fall of 1969, a thesaurus was weaponized in the office of the vice presidency. And from its pages issued a torrent of 10-cent words, a fountain of effluence aimed at the elite, the effete, and the seat of the ample, comfortable behinds of smug professors, journalists, hippies, communists, and American sellouts. Spiro T. Agnew struck these hammer blows of acerbic truth. He was a man skilled in the acervuline aggregation of appellations and alliteration. He, or his speechwriters anyway, spoke of the nattering nabobs of negativism who have formed their own 4-H club, the hopeless, hysterical, hypochondriacs of history. They called Agnew Nixon's Nixon. And about six months into the first term, the former Maryland governor transformed himself from a directionless appendage to a truncheon who took on the press and the elites and the intellectuals living in their comfortable little bubbles, making judgments and pressing their opinions on regular people as if those good folk were too stupid to form their own ideas themselves. Agnew was a defender of the administration, yes, but he was a defender of far more. He was a defender of a class of Americans outside the cities who were worried about what was going on in those cities and in the universities and in the protest marches and in the don't call them racists. They were worried about what all this change was doing to their country and the simple truths they believed in. He defended the hard hat construction workers who couldn't help themselves and threw rocks at the young hippie protesters. Agnew was Donald Trump before Donald Trump, railing against political correctness and standing up for the silent majority, a term associated with Nixon, but which was first used by Vice President Agnew in May of 1969. His success among the conservative movement spoke to the change that group would undergo between the failure of Barry Goldwater in 1964 and Ronald Reagan's success in 1980. His proclamations, though, help us not just to understand the developments of the past, but to understand the president. And to understand the present. Agnew played the role he did as guardian of truth and flamethrower of righteousness because it was considered a role unfit for the president. Or so President Nixon and his team thought when they unleashed the vice president in the fall of 1969 to put the cheese grater to their opponents. That line that they drew in 1969 between the vice president and the president has now been erased as the sitting president echoes so many of the lines and messages of Agnew's Tart speeches in 1969 through 1972. 
Our whistle stop today is October 15th, 1969. It's four days after Moratorium Day, a nationwide protest against the Vietnam War in which participants were supposed to stop what they were doing, stop work, don't go to school, to stage a general strike as a sign of opposition to the bloody war. Agnew is speaking in New Orleans at a $100 a plate Republican dinner. It was supposed to be a rather dull defense of President Nixon's Vietnam policy. The vice president had been handed nine pages of dutiful text, and the vice president added one page of his own writings. It was that one page that would rocket his career into an entirely different direction and make him one of the most visible vice presidents in modern American history. Sometimes it appears that we're reaching a period when our senses and our minds will no longer respond to moderate stimulation. We seem to be approaching an age of the gross. Persuasion through speeches and books is too often discarded for disruptive demonstrations aimed at bludgeoning the unconvinced into action. The young, and by this I don't mean by any stretch of the imagination all the young, but I'm talking about those who claim to speak for the young, at the zenith of physical power and sensitivity overwhelm themselves with drugs and artificial stimulants. Subtlety is lost, and fine distinctions based on acute reasoning are carelessly ignored in a headlong jump to a predetermined conclusion. Life is visceral rather than intellectual, and the most visceral practitioners of life are those who characterize themselves as intellectuals. Truth is, to them, revealed rather than logically proved. And the principal infatuations of today revolve around the social sciences, those subjects which can accommodate any opinion and about which the most reckless conjecture cannot be discredited. Education is being redefined at the demand of the uneducated to suit the ideas of the uneducated. The student now goes to college to proclaim rather than to learn. The lessons of the past are ignored and obliterated in a contemporary antagonism known as the generation gap. A spirit of national masochism prevails, encouraged by an effete core of impudent snobs who characterize themselves as intellectuals. Agnew continued on to say that if the moratorium, that general strike, had any use whatever, it served as an emotional purgative for those who felt the need to cleanse themselves of their lack of ability to offer a constructive solution to the problem. You'll notice in that speech that it probably felt a lot softer than you were expecting, certainly softer than that huge wind-up I gave it. And so it's useful, I think, because it's tempting when you read about Agnew to turn him into a McCarthy-like figure. But he was very different in the way that he carried himself than Joe McCarthy, the Wisconsin senator, who was one big ramshackle shirt tail and face full of whiskey and sweat. McCarthy was rumpled. Agnew was like a sleek otter. His neck and head were the same size, and his hair was slicked back, and the whole operation moved as one unit, and he carried himself with a restraint. He explained that he never crossed his legs because that kept a crisp crease in his trousers at all times. And he also said that he avoided wrinkles in his suit jacket by never letting his back touch the back of the chair. 
One reporter said it looked as though uh, Agnew's wife pushed him out the front door on a skateboard every morning. That kind of perfect, maybe 1950s embodiment of the antiseptic uh, company man. He was not, again, that messy Lyndon Johnson kind of politician. Jules Whitcover, who wrote a great book all called The White Knight on Agnew, who I'll quote from a lot in this take, said this, one gets the distinct feeling that he, that Agnew, would rather not touch anybody or be touched with a 10-foot pole. What makes Agnew distinct in the story you're about to hear of the attacks he made on the press and elites is that he worked so hard to sound like the intellectuals he was criticizing. This is a, this is a somewhat rare type, the populist egghead. Usually when you're giving the knee to the groin to the high collar types, you take on the language of the people you're defending. So Donald Trump does this in word and deed. He is every inch a man from Queens. And though his accent is all flushing meadows, the umph is universal across the country. And in the way he behaves when he's with coal miners, he pantomimes what he thinks their work behavior would be like, uh, pretending he's lifting a shovel. And then, of course, the same with truck drivers when he got behind the wheel of a big truck when it came to visit him at the White House. Agnew had the plain background. He could have gone back to the to his Greek roots. His father was a Greek immigrant, but he used the fancy language and carried himself like a man who had made it and was speaking on the same class plane as those elites. Our story is going to end up on Agnew's attack on the press in the fall of 1969. There's lots to say about Agnew and his career, and we'll do that in perhaps some other future episodes. We're just sticking out one little bit here, but and the reason we're going to focus on the press is obviously there are echoes in the current day, but um, the press was the worst organ of elite opinion, according to Agnew, and, and that's still part of the attack from conservatives on the press now. And there was a political benefit, obviously, for Nixon and Agnew in using the press as a, as a foil, which Donald Trump knows well. The press is a good foil because who has constant contact with college professors? The press is on all the time. And therefore able to be used all the time. There are two reasons, at least, for Agnew uh, and, and having legitimate anger about the press. And the first was the way he thought the press overinterpreted his words. This, again, an echo of President Trump, who complains about the press taking him too literally sometimes. UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, in fact, said that she considers his tweets just to be so much chatter. They get irritated in the administration when the press pays too much attention to the actual words that the president uses and or elevates those words when they are incendiary above the mountain of other words that he says that are not newsworthy. Here's what Jules Whitcover wrote about the way Ag the Agnew folks felt about the reactions to his speeches like the one that you've just listened to. And it's a way in which the system of press coverage causes upset. And that happens today in, in the Trump administration and other administrations. And it reflects a misunderstanding of how the press does its job and how politicians and their staff view what the press does. Here's Whitcover. How Agnew's words appear in print, his aides say, when Agnew himself knows he's delivered them with a minimum of visual or oral bombast, may account in part for his disenchantment with the press coverage. This is one of his aides talking about the press. They go through a speech and take that phrase and this phrase, and this is legitimate. It's what he said. And you put that in the lead. You take this sharp paragraph and you put it number two. That stuff comes smoking across that wire, and that's hot copy. 
What does not come, quote, smoking across the wire, of course, is the physical Spiro Agnew. In person or in television, the look of a man has a mesmerizing effect. Self-contained, assured quality, a manicured coolness that is accentuated by small, spiritless eyes, his erect carriage, and impeccably understated dress. So what Agnew and lots of press operations since then saw is a deliberate attempt to put hot sauce on his remarks. You elevate the tough stuff, you forget the other nine pages of Drek. And the nine pages of Drek are, by the way, what they were trying to get across. And Drek is a stupid word to use. It's not Drek. It's the actual positions of the administration. And they're not unimportant, but they are not as important as the most important thing that the candidate or or public official has said. And what the press must do is deliver the news, the new and the notable. The press does not cover every time a plane lands safely. The press does this because, A, it's a busy world and there are a lot of things happening that are newsy. And B, because part of the job is delivering meaning and context for public words. The president and his staff have the greatest megaphone in the world. But they don't think that's enough. They want the press to merely echo them, which misunderstands what the press is there for. If an administration wants to have people read unfiltered accounts of what they want to do, then they should print press releases, give speeches without any time for rebuttal or questions, spend millions on showy public relations displays like plant visits or Memorial Day speeches, public addresses, all of which get covered and leave unfiltered impressions on people. And of course, administrations do do all of this. And the press plays no role other than helping administrations get their point of view across. But for many politicians, that is not enough. The Democratic reaction to Agnew's speeches, the early ones, were typified by this. Senator George McGovern said that the Republican theme song had been, quote, the goblins will get you if you don't follow us. Instead of inspiring the American people to higher ground, they have treated us as frightened children whose fears could be manipulated for partisan gain. Now, let's step back a minute here before Agnew has his big moment in the fall of 1969. He was a bit of a nobody. That's not quite right, except that he used to, even he joked about the fact that when he was picked as Nixon's running mate for the 68 campaign, the first question people asked was, Spiro who? He was a governor of Maryland, elected in 1966 after the country became disappointed with Lyndon Johnson. Agnew had been a supporter of Rockefeller, the liberal Republican for president. And here's how Justin Coffey describes him in Spiro Agnew and the Rise of the Republican Right, a very solid volume that puts Agnew in his political time. When Agnew began his political career, he fashioned himself as a pragmatic moderate. A Baltimore County executive, Agnew eschewed ideology and charted a middle path, one that he hoped the Republican Party would adopt. In 1964, Agnew opposed Senator Barry Goldwater's candidacy for the Republican presidential nomination. When he ran for governor in Maryland in 1966, Agnew continued to portray himself as a moderate. And during much of the 1960s, Agnew denounced political extremism and was particularly critical of the right wing of the GOP. But as Agnew climbed up the political ladder, his views evolved, and his political metamorphosis helped earn him a spot on the Republican ticket in 1968. In Stanton Evans' book, The Future of Conservatism, and Evans was a National Review editor and managing editor of the conservative Human Events, he listed Agnew in 1968 as a liberal. So Agnew was not well known. Spiro who? The son of a poor Greek-American immigrant, he'd come to power uh, with the support of African-Americans. But in response to the riots in Baltimore following the murder of Martin Luther King, Agnew became a tough-on-crime governor. And that's what gained him the attention of Richard Nixu. Nixu. Richard Nixu was a guy who lived in uh, Des Moines. But Richard Nixon also 
found him worth noticing. Agnew, this is where, in response to the riots in Baltimore, it's where Agnew started to test out some of that fancy language that he would later become known for. He damned, after those riots, the, quote, circuit riding, Hanoi visiting, caterwauling, riot-inducing, burn America down type of black leader. Now, Nixon was looking for a running mate who would be a strong law and order type who could compete on that issue with George Wallace of Alabama. You remember, of course, from your endless listening to the Whistle Stop episode on George Wallace, he was the Alabama governor in 1968 who was winning converts to his campaign with his strong denunciations of lawless marchers and ghetto rioters. The challenge to Nixon was that Wallace would take all the law and order votes and leave Humphrey with the liberals and that basically Agnes, uh, Wallace and Nixon would split the vote and give Humphrey the victory. Agnew was not going to, uh, as a vice president, he's not going to send any special signals to the liberals or the African-Americans. And let's measure the distance here. Remember the first whistle stop ever? Of course you do. Your annual celebration of the first whistle stop is something that warms the heart. It was about George Romney's ghetto tour of 1967 when he visited 19 inner cities to get a sense of the inner cities. How did Agnew respond about that? He said, if you've seen one slum, you've seen them all. That was not in response to Romney, by the way. That was just Agnew's view on what was happening in the ghettos when he was, and they called him that then, in 1968. So you have Romney going out and doing this long tour as a way of educating himself and raising the issue to the forefront. He was a liberal Republican. Agnew, no. So this is important, of course, because the Republican Party had started to use social issues in 1968 as a wedge to drive the electorate and attract Democrats who were disillusioned after the 1964 and 65 civil rights behavior of Kennedy and Johnson and obviously the Civil Rights Act. And also, by the way, it wasn't just race. It was also those independents and conservative Democrats in both, obviously, the South, but also the Midwest, who were disillusioned with the excesses of 1960s liberalism. The thing is that Agnew was seen as kind of a, a goof. He had a series of gaffes on the stump. One was to refer to the Polish as Polacks, and another was to echo some of McCarthy's language when he labeled people soft on communism. But his biggest moment, and, and this is the, this is the kind of center of his hatred for the press, something that happened on a plane flight back out of Las Vegas. Agnew had, uh, stayed overnight in Vegas. The press had stayed with him. And Gene Oshie of the Baltimore Sun had spent a little too much time at the craps table the night before, and he was passed out in the seat. And Agnew came back to the press section and looking at him, he said to another member of the press, what's the matter with the fat Jap? So a lot of stuff gets said in the back of a plane in those days that was kept off the record. But this was a slur of a kind that was uh, both A, outside the bounds, and B, attached to this previous kind of clumsiness that Agnew had shown with his comment about Pollocks and some of the other things that he said. And so Jules Whitcover, again, returning to his account of Agnew, and this again is called The White Knight, The Rise of Spiro Agnew, writes about what happened. So in the press, some wanted to write about the incident, saying it was it, it showed something revealing about Agnew. Oshi wanted to let it slide. They did nothing at first. But then, as Whitcover writes, quote, the inside workings of the competitive press were destined before long to take those seven simple words Agnew had uttered and make them tacitly the most critical to come out of his mouth up to that point in the campaign. And there again, going back to that idea of the disconnect between the way the press does its job and the way Agnew folks saw things, it was that the press would would put too much emphasis on this and that it would become overblown, mountain out of a molehill kind of thing. The Post 
wrote about it first, and they put it at the last paragraph of a campaign piece. But after that, the story took on a life of its own. A newspaper in Honolulu put it on the front page. The Agnew campaign felt like it had been double-crossed. The remark had been made as a joke in the privacy of the plane, where the rules were loose, and you got access to the candidate basically in exchange for the fact that you wouldn't print every last word that the candidate said. Some of the old pros wrote Whitcover held that it was a Bush League thing to report a casual remark the candidate had made in the back of the plane. You may remember this is a little bit similar to something that happened to Senator Allen of Virginia in a Senate campaign when he was when he referred to a uh, Democratic operative who was following his campaign as Makaka. Allen, when he defended himself, said that, that he thought that was actually what they called him. That was what his aides called him. And that was kind of the distinction, that they were using this uh, racially charged slur in private to refer to this person. And Senator Allen let it out of the bag. Well, Agnew had a similar defense. He said that he thought they called uh, Oshi the fat Jap. That wasn't the case. So there started to be lots of writing about Agnew's insensitivity. And the whole experience came to signify that Agnew was a clumsy and boorish person. Now, Agnew sought to try to rescue himself uh, from the speech by giving a speech in Hawaii. And he talked about his Greek heritage and now how he'd grown up with racial slurs and that somebody with that kind of background would never do what he was being accused of doing, which was using a racial slur knowingly. He said he'd been joking and he said it was not it was you were allowed to tell those kinds of jokes these days because we weren't stuck in the old days in which he grew up. Yes, he said we were sensitive in those days, but you'd think the United States is past that point where we're drawn up so tight that we cannot communicate with each other and where our sense of humor is beginning to disappear. You may recognize that argument as against political correctness. What Agnew is doing is he's taking this gaffe, this line, this offensive thing he said, and he's elevating it to a larger argument with a willing audience ready to hear uh, this larger claim, which is that something has been lost by the new social arbiters in America who don't even let us speak clearly and who are drawn up so tight. And then he, he said these words, which would sound familiar to anyone who's listening to the, who listened to the 2016 campaign. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, I'm sick of sloganeering. I am sick of people reading something different into law and order and what law and order really means. I'm sick of people attempting to put my thoughts into a context that they didn't exist in when I spoke them. So this is a constant refrain from President Trump and from other conservatives who think that the liberal media puts their words into a context that they didn't mean. This is where this begins, at least not obviously the very beginning, but it where it's where it begins and becomes a national outlet for that kind of feeling. Agnew in this speech in Hawaii continues to climb on higher ground. This is America, he said. This is the melting pot of America. And if if we are so ashamed by our background that a single word sends us into orbit, then the purpose of America, my friends, is a beginning to fail. To those of you who have misread my words, I say only you have misread my heart. So not a bad bit of jujitsu here to turn an offensive comment into uh, a threat by those who would call it offensive to the very uh, nature of America. The reporters uh, following Agnew after the speech said it was his checkers speech, name, uh, so-called after Richard Nixon's speech as vice president that helped rescue his place on Eisenhower's ticket. In a meeting later with reporters, there's another historical echo here. Agnew made a long defense of his position, saying that calling the reporter the fat Jap was no more than a kind of playful banter and good fellowship. And this again from Whitcover, playful banter and good fellowship he had often heard in the Baltimore Colts locker room. You may remember that President Trump defended his remarks from an Access Hollywood tape about uh, joking about his success committing sexual assault on women as locker room banter. 
A reporter in uh, from the New York Times said to Agnew, Homer uh, Bigart, said to Agnew, Governor Agnew, one thing you must remember, locker room humor should never be equated with running for vice president of the United States. Here's how Whitcover said Agnew viewed this event. And it's central both to understanding Agnew's motivations, understanding the larger national mood that Agnew gave popular voice to and successful voice to, and the same exact feeling that exists among Donald Trump supporters and why they defend him regardless of, of things he may say because they see an unfair fight. Here's Whitcover on what Agnew felt. Agnew, for his part, saw in the incident, the incident being the Fat Jap incident, a press that went out of its way to make mountains out of molehills. That was unfair. That didn't even play according to its own rules. That kicked a man when he was down, not just by writing what he had just said, but by resurrecting a lot of old turkeys to make him look bad. Once a man made a mistake, he was branded with it, whether or not it was an innocent one or whether he was sorry and apologized. Even if there was a number of mistakes, they always were mentioned. Anything constructive he had to say was lost to the constant striving to make a jackass of him. If he hadn't realized it fully before, Ted Agnew, that was his nickname, came to feel now that the press held all the Trump cards in a stacked deck, or so it seemed increasingly to him. Two other quick origin points of this feeling about the press from the campaign in 1968. Towards the end of the campaign, the New York Times ran an editorial about Agnew's dealings as governor, which suggested he'd made money off of the building of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. And the Times and Agnew and the Nixon campaign got into a protracted back and forth, back and forth into whether the editorial was accusing Agnew of wrongdoing. The Times said it was simply raising questions. And, and the Times waffled and whistled around here, too. But, of course, Agnew overplayed his hands as well. But uh, the, it got to the point where Nixon had to speak out. And so on October 27th on Face the Nation, Nixon set the stage and said that the Times was practicing the lowest kind of gutter politics that a great newspaper could possibly engage in for printing uh, the false and inaccurate charges. And he warned that there would be uh, a retraction or else legal action would be taken. The Times climbed down a little bit, but in the end, accused Agnew of carrying to its climax in this campaign one of the oldest political strategies when criticized, deny everything, cry foul, capitalize on a posture of injured innocence, and denounce your critic in the wildest terms. The Times then concluded about Agnew, it is his insensitivity to the problem of ethics of public servants that now stands revealed and reinforces our belief that he is a poor choice to be placed one step away from the presidency of the United States. So this was what Agnew carried into the presidency from the campaign. But what, what we're trying to get at here is obviously the disconnect between the New York Times and what it thinks and what the funny people think and what the country thinks. Agnew became such a laughing stock during the campaign that the Washington Post concluded that Agnew was perhaps the most eccentric political appointment since Roman Emperor Caligula named his horse a consul. A television ad by the Humphrey campaign sounded simply like this. Imagine a television screen with the words Agnew for vice president. <laughs> And then at the end of the ad on the screen, it said this would be funny if it weren't so serious. So here we have big funny guy, laughingstock, boorish, all this horrible stuff. But 
once again, and we're quoting here again from Coffee about the rise of Agnew and the and the Republican right disconnect because while the elites are making fun of Agnew, he's touching on something. And the story that Coffee tells is about Lyndon Johnson riding with Nixon on the way to Nixon's inauguration. To, and Coffee writes, Johnson spoke with very strong feeling with regard to Muskie and Agnew, Muskie being Humphrey's vice presidential choice. He said that at dinner the night before, a group of people he was talking to about how much Muskie had contributed to the campaign. He, Johnson, had replied that all the press had slobbered all over Muskie, but when it came down to votes, Muskie hadn't delivered Maine with four votes, whereas Agnew could take credit for at least a great deal of credit on South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky. Obviously, he liked Agnew and had very little use for Muskie. So Coffey's conclusion is that Agnew helped make Nixon president. Despite all the gaffes and all that business uh, about Agnew, he delivered votes for Nixon in some key swing states and had connected Nixon, who had been questioned by conservatives. The cultural connection that Agnew made with voters benefited Nixon in 68. Okay, so now vice president. Remember vice president, not a job that, you know, referred to as a warm bucket of spit. Alvin Barkley once said, once upon a time, there was a farmer who had two sons. One of them ran off to sea. The other was elected vice president of the United States, and nothing more was ever heard of either of them. When Nixon announced Agnew, he, he made a big deal about how his office was going to be in the West Wing. But Agnew had a kind of a slow start. Nixon was obviously running the show. And when when and this is a kind of funny anecdote, given what Mike Pence is doing on behalf of Donald Trump and working with Congress. But uh, Republican Lee Jordan of U Utah, conservative Republican Lee Jordan, was asked by Agnew as they were lobbying for some bill, whether he, the administration had his vote. Jordan said, you had it. You did have until now. Uh, and Jordan was somewhat mild-mannered, but he basically said he believed so firmly in the separation of the legislative and the executive branches that he would be guided by, uh, from then on, by the, quote, Jordan rule. And that was that if the vice president tried to lobby him on anything, he would automatically vote the opposite way. Well, that's quite different, obviously, than today when a president and his vice president are measured by their ability to um, lobby Congress. And obviously, the Lyndon Johnson myth and reality uh, it, it was about his political power as a lobbyist for his own cause. So this is Agnew feeling a little um, penned in, a little like he's not really doing very much in the job. But then the moratorium day comes and the Vietnam uh, marchers and the liberals in the Republican Party in Congress, all of them pushing back against a president and a thin-skinned administration. And so that administration wants to push back. But the problem is, how do you push back? Well, if you're a president today, you get on Twitter and you push back yourself. But there was a clear and crucial distinction that Nixon made about the office of the presidency. He recalled that though the Republicans lost in 54 and 58 in those off-year elections, and the party had suffered the brunt of the bad politics, quote, Eisenhower didn't lose, said Nixon, because he was always a part he maintained the dignity of the president. So Nixon saw a difference between, the, they saw a reason to respect the office of the presidency. And that was that basically if Nixon got into the gutter, it would diminish his ability to in, inhabit the upper ranges of the presidential office. This is a decision Donald Trump has made in the exact opposite direction, most notably in his criticism of his predecessor, President Trump, as you remember, said that President Obama wiretapped Trump Tower. 
And the FBI director said there was no evidence of that. The two Republican chairmen of the investigative committees in the House and the Senate said there was no evidence. The former director of national intelligence said there was no in, in intelligence. And this wasn't just fact checking. It was a it was a highlight of how lightly President Trump treats the office of the presidency versus the way Nixon did. So they, we have presidents and we have the office of the presidency. Presidents are criticized, but the presidency is behind kind of bulletproof glass. That's why a president can come into office attacking his predecessor's policies, but later celebrate the dedication of that same predecessor's presidential library. It's why George W. Bush prepared a smooth transition for Barack Obama and why President Obama did the same for Donald Trump. Once on the job, a president gains respect for the presidency because they learn, and this is what Eisenhower was saying, uh, that the job, I mean, what Nixon was saying about Eisenhower is they recognized that the job is harder than it appeared from the campaign trail, that there is something about the job also worth protecting once you get in there. And the, and the, one of the things you get is the historical continuity of the presidency, which allows you to gain sanction from the office and from the predecessor. So you gain stature by hugging those who came before you. So Donald Trump visited Andrew Jackson's grave and compared himself to the seventh president, who also uh, caused elites to get nervous. The office of the presidency also tempers your opponents who respect the office, even though they don't respect necessarily the occupant. And these perks and protections are why presidents protect the office. But Donald Trump nevertheless compared President Obama to Nixon and McCarthy, called Obama sick and bad. And to break that glass, you've got to either have good reason or proof. And President Trump had no evidence and no higher purpose. So he, unlike Nixon with Agnew, went full in on the attack, but had no evidence. Agnew actually had some, some uh, well, Agnew's attacks were of a co totally different order. President Trump's attacks were on his predecessor directly. And the reason this is important, obviously, is that presidents get into crises and you need the higher ranges of the presidency to be able to speak with authority to the country uh, and surround yourself with the protections and the use the elevation of the office. That's all the stuff that Nixon was protecting when he sent Agnew out to give him the give the, the liberals, the elites and the press the what for. The speech that Ag got Agnew noticed in October of 69 was covered, but it turned out when reporters went back, they found other speeches he'd given in the previous days that had some good stuff in it. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of riffs from two different speeches. One, should the establishments of this country, industrial, business, educational, and governmental, cringe and wring their hands before a small group of misfits seeking to discredit a free system because they can't effectively compete and find success anywhere? He's obviously talking there about the marchers, protesters, critics, elites. Here's from another speech in Montpelier, Vermont. He said, the man who believes in God and country, hard work and honest opportunity is denounced for his archaic views. The nation which has provided more justice, equality, freedom and opportunity than any nation in world history is told to feel guilty for its failures. A big question coming out of these speeches was Agnew speaking for Nixon. And here's why... Um, Here's why this matters and why it's the locus of our meditation today. What Agnew was doing was making a strategic decision to create division. I did not intend that to rhyme, but since this is a whistle stop about a rhyming politician, I suppose that's appropriate. Presidents and administrations had used their opponents as foils before. FDR had said he wore his critics scorn like a badge of honor. But what Agnew was doing and what we see being done today was making a specific case to divide the country and use that division 
to build political power. And he did it in the name of the majority and in all in the name of all that was good in America. But it was a break from the usual pattern. Presidents usually talked about unity. Administrations usually elevated unity. They strived for unity. It was part of the presidential hymnal. So we've been talking about norms, Nixon protecting the presidential norm by having Agnew do this attacking. But the question was then, was he protecting the unity norm? The idea that um, you gain political power and that your job as president and an administration's job was to bring, foster, and create unity. Or was this a break? Was this a political decision to create division, to sow division, to, to build division in order to create power? Here's how much Dixon had talked about unity in his convention speech, both in 1968 and in his inaugural address in 1969. Here he is uh, from that inaugural address in 1969. Greatness comes in simple trappings. The simple things are the ones most needed today if we are to surmount what divides us and cement what unites us. To lower our voices, would be a simple thing. In these difficult years, America has suffered from a fever of words, from inflated rhetoric that promises more than it can deliver, from angry rhetoric that fans discontents into hatreds, from bombastic rhetoric that postures instead of persuading. We cannot learn from one another until we stop shouting at one another, until we speak quietly enough so that our words can be heard, as well as our voices. This is why pundits and press analysts kept asking whether Agnew was off on his own, or whether he was. this was part of a systemic strategy. In Harrisburg, a few days after this, the first bombshell speech in New Orleans, Agnew put the strategy quite plainly. If in challenging we polarize the American people, I say it's time for a positive polarization. It is time for a healthy, in-depth examination of policies and a constructive realignment in this country. It is time to rip away the rhetoric and divide on authentic lines. 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what Nixon was talking about in that inaugural address. So was it a two-track strategy? Was it Agnew going off on his own and therefore a clash between this office of the presidency and by two-track, I meant good cop, bad cop. Or was it really the Agnew strategy with some pretty words on top? President Trump has gone pure Agnew, division with, with very little talk of, of unity, except on the terms of um, supplication. Nixon, uh, during this question of whether Agnew was uh, speaking for him, put the doubts to rest at the end of October. I'm very proud to have the vice president with his Greek background in our administration, and he's done a great job for this administration. He said that at a at an event where Agnew's Greek background was worth uh, discussing. There's no special code to that. It was just at a um, heritage event or something. So the final episode and most important episode in terms of Agnew's relationship with the press took place on November 13th, uh, 1969. Days before Agnew's speech in Des Moines, the president had given a speech on Vietnam in the hopes of blunting more protests. There was a, supposed to be a, several more big uh, Vietnam protests. And Agnew was furious at the press coverage of the speech. 
and he planned to deliver a speech about the press coverage in Des Moines. And when the news networks got word that this was, he was, was what he was going to do, and they got a text of the speech several hours before delivery, they embarked upon a frantic effort to take the speech live. And the reason, of course, this is important is you recognize that kind of behavior now from when President Trump and candidate Trump had a stemwinder to deliver all the cable networks stop what they were doing, carry the speech live. Well, they carried the vice president of the United States live in giving this speech. Can you imagine that now? It would have to be pretty special. So uh, everybody frantically went crazy to get pool coverage going, and all the networks put the speech on live in uh, Agnew's speech to the Midwestern Republicans who were meeting in Des Moines. And the thrust of his speech was an, was a rebuke of the press's instant analysis of President Nixon's Vietnam speech. Monday night, a week ago, President Nixon delivered the most important address of his administration, one of the most important of our decade. His subject was Vietnam. My hope, as his, at that time, was to rally the American people to see the conflict through to a lasting and just peace in the Pacific. For 32 minutes, he reasoned with a nation that has suffered almost a third of a million casualties in the longest war in its history. When the president completed his address, an address, incidentally, that he spent weeks in the preparation of, his words and policies were subjected to instant analysis and querulous criticism. The audience of 70 million Americans gathered to hear the President of the United States was inherited by a small band of network commentators and self-appointed analysts, the majority of whom expressed in one way or another their hostility to what he had to say. It was obvious that their minds were made up in advance. One commentator twice contradicted the President's statement about the exchange of correspondence with Ho Chi Minh. Another challenged the president's abilities as a politician. A third asserted that the president was following the Pentagon line. Others, by the expressions on their faces, the tone of their questions, and the sarcasm of their responses, made clear their sharp disapproval. The vice president concluded his... Um his remarks by saying the public, the public should register its complaints on television bias by writing or calling in the stations. And the response was immediate and overwhelming in support of Agnew's charges. The phones flooded uh, the local stations throughout the country, and network executives were forced to respond. Frank Stanton, president of CBS, called the speech, quote, an unprecedented attempt by the vice president of the United States to intimidate a news medium which depends for its existence upon government leases. Julian Goodman, the president of NBC, accused Agnew of, quote, making an appeal to prejudice. More importantly, incorrect grammar, Mr. Agnew uses the influence of the high office to criticize the way a government-licensed news medium covers the activities of the government itself. It is regrettable the vice president of the United States should deny to TV freedom of the press. So, they're up in arms. Brian Rosenwald, crackerjack researcher and in-house historian at Whistledot, makes this important point. Through these media attacks, Agnew starts pushing the press to the right. And it's not unlike the, the conservative media today, he argues, and I think he's right, that makes the pushes and pushes and pushes against the mainstream media to get it to move to the right. And this is something the Obama administration used to worry about, particularly in why it would go on Fox News, because they felt like reporters who were trying to stay balanced 
would watch what Fox News was saying and then just sort of report the Fox News position and the administration position, which the administration thought got things out of whack. While the media bristled at what Agnew was saying, they made efforts to basically heed what he was saying. And here's Whitcover in his account after the Des Moines speech echoing what uh, Brian Rosenwald is saying. The next time the president appeared on nationwide television, the networks put their analysts on immediately afterward, as usual, to demonstrate that things hadn't changed. Then they limited them to the most perfunctory rehash of what Nixon had said. ABC's commentary was on and off the screen so fast as to be almost subliminal. So it was working. Uh, so keep working the refs. After the Des Moines speech, Agnew was off to the races, and he kept on his bashing of the press and the Eastern establishment and the elites and the protesters. You're doing us a great disservice. Eva Jefferson, one of the presidents of uh, the Black Student Union at Northwestern, said, you're making people afraid of their own children. What Agnew did in this constant barrage that began in the fall of 1967 was he emboldened and heartened conservatives who didn't really like a lot of Nixon's policies, but cheered having a champion, keyword champion, in Agnew. What if Nixon's policies didn't they like? They didn't like the issuing of wage and price controls, the creating of the Environmental Protection Agency, the opening of diplomatic relationships relations with China, and the pursuing of arm control, arms control with the Soviet Union. This alienated conservatives in the GOP. The same conservatives were the ones who came to admire Agnew. Agnew became, for example, a hero of William Rusher, the editor of the National Review, who would be so fundamental in trying to get Ronald Reagan to run at his own, as his own head of a conservative party. The reason this is important, of course, is because the conservatives were not destined to be the head of the, or the center of the Republican Party in 1968. It was a real up for grabs question about whether the moderates in the party would gain control of the Republican Party or the conservatives would. So to have a conservative champion in this battle was crucial. Here's Goldwater, who Agnew did not support in 64, responding to Agnew's series of speeches. If Ted Agnew keeps on expressing the sentiment of the vast, overwhelming majority of the American people, he may find himself being boomed for president before it's even his turn. Agnew was striking a chord. He was speaking about the cultural rot, the crime, the sexual liberation, the anti-communism, the rights protections that encroached on other people's rights, the drug use. He played on that same acid amnesty and abortion line that Nixon ran on in 1968 and people's lack of patriotism, the waning patriotism that people saw as a part of America's declining stature in the world, all of which tied to the horrible pictures coming from Vietnam overseas, where America was on was not winning. And uh, it was essentially, he was a Tea Party favorite before the Tea Party existed. And that's why the idea that Trump's voters were missed is kooky, to me anyway, because we've seen these voters, this cultural upset with Washington and its collectivism and the sellout by the by the Washington politicians. We saw it in Goldwater. We saw it in Agnew. We saw it in Reagan. We saw it in Pat Buchanan. We saw it in Bob Dornan and Alan Keyes and in Phil Graham's campaign. We've seen it in Ted Cruz's campaign and the Tea Party. We've seen it a lot in the Republican movement is the hardcore grassroots cultural conservatives. And by cultural, I don't mean religiously cultural necessarily, but protecting a traditional way of American life they think is being encroached on by liberalism has been a fundamental part of the growth of the conservative movement within the Republican Party. Uh, And Agnew was an important way station on that way. In the Agnew you've been listening to, you can hear some echoes in the 
rhetoric of Donald Trump. And here's a speech, uh, 18 seconds of a speech he gave during the campaign that, that contains some of that same thrust. It's a global power structure that is responsible for the economic decisions that have robbed our working class, stripped our country of its wealth, and put that money into the pockets of a handful of large corporations and political entities. The only thing that can stop this corrupt machine is you. Agnew became so popular, he was considered a likely presidential candidate in 1968. Unfortunately for him, it was found out that he was taking kickbacks and he was forced to out of the presidency in 1973. But he was that important way station in the, in the rise of conservatism. He represented that brand of uh, take no prisoners, don't back down uh, conservatism that saw division as a good and not that unity and the soft talk of unity blurred distinctions and uh, was bad politically because it blurred those distinctions it was bad politically because it made a real uh, separation with the other party. And also it gave nothing to your supporters who didn't want you to didn't want to hear the mamby pamby, uh, the pablum pushed around on the plate. It wanted to see an axe coming in and speaking truth and making clear proclamations about the way things were, the fuzzy gauzy language of compromise and nice, nice was the language of the a losing side. But B, the language of the other side that was always uh, trying to fuzzy things up. America's singularity and importance in the world was that it set clear lines and distinctions. And while it may not live up to those lines that were so clear, they were an asymptote, uh, which uh, America should strive to, to touch, even though it might never actually achieve. Thanks to Roy Peter Clark for the asymptote analogy in another context. And obviously the, the part targeting of elites from the official podium, which was distinct from Wallace, who was targeting the elites from the campaign podium. And we see that, of course, in our president today and in those sur who surround him. The conclusion on the media point comes from our friend Brian Rosenwald. And his argument is that on a broader scale, these attacks fit into uh, the, the successful battle to undermine the, the notion of objective experts and an objective media. So coming on after those presidential uh, speeches and pretending that what they were saying was objective, Agnew undermined that idea and transformed the ideal into the mainstream ideal into one of balance. That man, okay, if we're no longer going to be seen as objective, we'll offer both the conservative and the liberal perspectives. So that that had that has created a media landscape over the years in which you had both a conservative ad advocacy press that kind of took off in the late '80s, and then a mainstream press which was both. Um, that tried to, pre to present both sides accurately, but that was still nevertheless embedded in that largely liberal cultural bubble. And it's that cultural bubble, obviously, that's gotten so much talk uh, in our current presidential campaign. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcast at slate.com or even better, leave us a review on the, in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our whistle stop crackerjack researcher and in-house historian Bryson Rosenwald has never nattered and never been a nabob, uh, but he has a charming and wonderful grasp of history. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. For Whistle Stop Season 2 of The Presidency, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. We'll look forward to being with you again in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>